Welcome to We Are Made of Stories. My name is Anthony Hanline. I'm Ryan Berry. And I'm Delaney McDonald. And we are covering chapters four through eight. From chapter four, um, a beautiful collection, we find out that Tobin's, Tobin is essentially um, losing the, um, his, his ownership, you know, over the trailer park in a year. Um, he has, you know, a year to get everything in order and to fix anything he can and like work with the city. Um, but after that year, he will no longer um, own it. So tenants are sort of trying to figure out where they're going, and he's evic evicting tenants who he finds a nuisance, and he also evicted specifically um, Pam and Ned, who have, I believe, two children and are, are um, they have an addiction. So in Chapter 5, 13th Street, um, Arlene, it focuses on Arlene and her two sons. Um, it talks about her moving into a her chronic depression and also like just the struggles that her and her sons are going through beyond like financial issues. But you know, that also like add that pressure. Um, so like, for example, her son Jafaris is showing signs of like anger issues and disabilities at school. Um, and he also has like frequent asthma attacks. Um, and then they also, there's some more statistics in this chapter. So three out of four families in the U S who qualify for assistance, they don't really receive anything. Um, I know they talk a little about how renting vouchers and how the wait for that is longer, um, depending on the state, but in most of them it is a couple of years long. Um, and then also Sharina rents um, an upstairs unit to someone named Trisha, Trisha, and she's a client of Belinda, and like the setup is that Belinda sort of like is like this in-between where she... Like the more, you know, cases she takes on of like people in need of housing and gives them to you know, people like Sharina or renters like Sharina, she gets paid for every case she takes on. Chapter six, um, we are introduced to the family called the Hankstons. Three generations of them are living in one of Sharina's rental properties. Um, and they say that before, you know, living in what they call like the rat hole, that's what they call it. They lived in a five bedroom house and Doreen received state funded child support and she was like emotionally invested you know in the neighborhood even though she they were still you know impoverished and didn't have like a lot of money she still gave a lot like emotionally and everything she gave a lot to the neighborhood um but following a shooting and like a police investigation um they fought their landlord um had filed a five-day eviction notice and now they're at like sharina's um property um and there's sort of like this back and forth between like them wanting things fixed in and you know the unit but them also being behind on rent um and then also um Doreen's daughter Natasha she discovers that she is 4 months pregnant in chapter 7 called the sick we meet Scott and Teddy and Scott used to be a nurse and he was very passionate about his job uh but while working in a nursing home he became addicted to painkillers and other opioids that he would steal from his work. So eventually, after uh, he was given a few chances by his employers and even actually sent to rehab, which he uh, avoided, his nursing license was revoked and he ended up meeting Teddy, who is partially paralyzed. He met Teddy at a homeless shelter and ended up living with him to assist him with like cooking, cleaning, shopping, and just overall managing his life. 
They also talk a lot about how Lenny was screening uh, prospective park tenants through the Consolidated Court Automation Program, which is a state-run database to screen prospective tenants uh, and review past evictions, felonies, criminal charges, and court cases. In Chapter 8, called Christmas in Room 400, Sharina decides to evict Arlene right before Christmas. And Arlene does come to the civil court and agrees to voluntarily move out of the apartment before Sharina has to call the sheriff. In civil court, uh, only about 70% of tenants summoned actually show up, um, and almost all of those were summoned for missing rent payments. And unlike in criminal court, uh, people don't have the right to an attorney. So about 90% of landlords have attorneys and 90% of tenants do not. So the themes that we have um, for, like I said, chapters four through eight are financial agency, um, cyclical poverty, uh, and some different social stigmas. Um, So we can start with financial agency. um, And the one, we can start with the, I don't know, I guess the definition, which is the ability to accrue financial resources and how, oh yeah, the ability to accrue financial resources. So, one of the big themes of financial agency in like this book is that I mean a lot of these impoverished um, tenants they just don't have like they don't have the agency um, to uh, to you know ask for better housing or like better quality um, housing since they do not own that actual apartment or room. Mm-hmm. An example that I thought was interesting was that a tenant could call an inspector but only if they were up on their rent essentially because if they were caught up on their rent they could call the inspector and have kind of the the kick to the landlord to say like okay i have to fix this now but if they were violating their lease then or or you know not up on their rent all the way then the landlord could say like well no i don't have to fix this because you're violating our agreement so if you get behind at any point not only then do you have to catch back up but you don't have the agency to say I want to improve my living conditions mm-hmm. like something is wrong this isn't livable but you really don't have any power over fixing that right even if it's like a direct threat especially like the person right. or their kids or anything like right. they put like the financial aspect first instead of like the health of people mm-hmm. or the agency to choose where you want to go right 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 they don't have the power to even say I'm leaving exactly because mm-hmm. you'll be out on the street anyway yeah with so many such a high rate of eviction you're just moving from from one place to the next I guess and Mm -hmm. if one person's evicted then that's open but there's so many people then looking for housing that the standards kind of get pushed to the side because it's it's shelter is shelter but right and then like you said it's high turnover so that goes Mm -hmm. right into um, the cyclical poverty issue Mm -hmm. Um, especially when it came to the issue of the housing vouchers and how it's set up in a system where people have to wait literal years to get one and they simply they don't have the time to just like wait Um, so that means instead of only spending a small percentage of the check that they so desperately need on rent and then you know spending the rest on something else they have to spend half their check or more on rent and that leaves them in a cycle where they have they can't they can't like, like progress or code to better quality housing they have to keep using such a large chunk of their income to pay for 
crappy housing, essentially. Right. And I think we have to think, too, that it's in such a condensed area, so you can't mm-hmm. even get, you can't even be in, uh, what would you say, like, the vicinity to have other resources to right. access. You're not near the city, you are outside of the city, or uh, just so compacted in with other people who are going through the same type of thing that it becomes a way of life. Right, and along with the surrounded by people going through a similar type of thing, uh, there were a couple times that they mentioned um, that you find yourself in these neighborhoods of drug users or drug sellers, or like how with Scott in particular, that he didn't have access to the drugs that he was stealing from work, and then he ended up doing heroin with, I'm blanking on the names, Mm-hmm, but but different people. The, mm-hmm. the people in his area, yeah. which then just kind of spirals off that same. It, it then that gets even some into the social stigma with with the addiction and the. Mm-hmm. It just yeah, it gets, gets thrown into criminal because it's like right. while while it is an issue, like one of the parts of addiction or one of the symptoms is that people do start you know they tend to steal from their family and friend and maybe mm-hmm. even their job to mm-hmm. fund that addiction like that gets focused on more like the you know like that yeah that loss of you know money or just like meds or whatever that gets uh focused on more than why they're doing it that it's like a neurological issue right that's that's the power of addiction exactly that i think you don't realize if you haven't seen it that it it like takes over your life so then you're not thinking about how am i going to pay rent next month you're thinking about how am i going to stop shaking and vomiting and it's very much an in the moment how do I yeah how do I fix this now and then things like your your rent just kind of get pushed aside I think too like with talking about like visibility and then being able Mm -hmm. to correlate being poor with being an addict um and that one is because of the other yeah that having financial resources and having financial agency goes into being able you can be there are plenty of people who are addicted and can Mm -hmm. afford rehab and never uh, have to steep into poverty or right. depend on uh, services or systems. Mm-hmm. So, the family just takes care of it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So you're able to have this like narrative where if that addiction does not exist if you are middle class, upper middle class, right. when, which is not true. Exactly. <laughs> right. I mean, we're moving, moving right along to questions. Um, Our first question, uh, why do you think there's hardly any mention of Trina and Quentin repairing any of the properties without the city citing them? Uh, This was just kind of something that came up a lot throughout the questions that were submitted. And a lot of it just has to do with, like, what's their motivation for making repairs? Mm -hmm. And really their biggest motivation is, you know, citations from the city. Um, There's a lot of times when they talk about uh, Sharina and and her her land, I guess, her, the property she rents out, uh, she'll let... The tenants get a little bit behind on the rent and like let the first one slide but that just gives her that bargaining power that she knows the citations are really her biggest worry and she doesn't need to fix things because like kind of like we were saying earlier these houses are in such high demand that the quality doesn't really even end up coming into play a lot of the time because there is such a high t- turnover that she doesn't need to take the time to fix them because someone's going to come in and want it anyway. So she's not going to take her time and her money 
to fix it unless she finally gets a tenant that is up on their rent and then she has the motivation of the city citation to actually then start repairing those. Okay, so our next question is, even with research showing how, um, quote, bad neighborhoods is a systemic issue, um, why are landlords still being taught arbitrary vetting methods? Um, so I saw this question, I know it refers to, or at least an example of it was when um, Shireen went to get like sort of like the landlord teaching or the landlord class or workshop, and whoever was teaching it was showing them ways to like, oh, if like they're wearing this or if they don't care, if, if they're looking at this wall or if they don't care about how the wall is, like that means they're gonna be a bad renter and things like right. this. And you know, the way that, you know, a couple looks at, looks or doesn't look at the appliances or looks or doesn't look at, I don't know, issues within a, a renting space is not the reason why we're in a housing crisis, you know? So that's why, um, I mean, that's at least what I'm attributing it to, you know, the use of like arbitrary vending methods like that. Um, and I mean, I think it comes down to just like a system where it doesn't, we've sort of talked about it a little too, where it, it, it's more on the side of the, the landlords. Um, and yeah, I mean, for that one thing, and then also um, a combination of like, you know, systematic, like, or systemic racism mm -hmm. and um, sexism, or just like overall oppression. So like thinking because of these, like, these very minuscule, um, very minuscule characteristics, you can like use those characteristics to see who, to see who does and doesn't, you know, who is it or isn't going to have money or who is or isn't gonna, um, isn't gonna pay rent when it's actually a system where we talk about like cyclical poverty, where it's like the system isn't helping these people, you know, get out of poverty. So that's why um, there's like these, you know, renting, these places who rent out that end up having high turnover rates, um, regardless of these vetting methods they're being taught. Um, so yeah, so I think that's why. <laughs> The next question is, why does the Consolidated Court Automation Program system list evictions along with criminal records instead of financial records? So this is like a constructed identity of an individual and using information to contextualize how someone has uh, existed in the system. So there is no... Um, details given about an eviction, no matter what the process is or the circumstances around that. And what it does is no matter what the circumstances are, an eviction always ends up being the fault of the renter. So even though, uh, what's her name, Sharina, is clearly not taking care of her properties, we're investing in the maintenance of the house and listening to her renters and the value that they bring her, uh, they are still responsible for being evicted. They, it is their job to essentially value their time there enough so that they do not get evicted, no matter the circumstances. So it, it's a power dynamic, and I think on top of that, it's the way the system is set up itself. Um, you have criminal records and then credit and anything else, anything else that comes in a background check that is essentially constructing this identity of the renter.
just to wrap things up, um, like I said before, you know, this was evicted um, chapters four through eight. Um, we went over some major themes that we, all three of us, you know, personally saw, which, um, which were financial agency, um, cyclical poverty, um, and some social stigmas that, you know, are a big part of like both of those. Um, when it came to renting and being evicted, um, just like the things we've seen, um, and you know, the perspective from a landlord too. Um, and we answered some of your questions. It also had a lot to do with the themes. And yeah, thank you guys for sending in your questions. Um, yeah, thank you. <laughs>